Well, good morning, and thank you all for coming. I'm sorry we're starting a little tiny bit late, but uh, I think we'll get through the point. Uh, let me open with, with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so very much for this fabulous privilege you give us to study your word. Thank you for being present with us as you have promised, and uh, thank you for the unity that we all share as brothers and sisters in Christ. Open our hearts and minds to what you have to say to us today. In your Son, Jesus Christ's name, we pray these things. Amen. Amen. Okay, so today is Sunday, October 13th, 2019, and we're studying today Bethel, New Testament, number 15, The Church. And I will tell you that uh, when I first saw this chapter, I said, oh, yawn, this is going to be really boring. But it's anything but. Uh, primarily because that's what all of us are. We all are part of the church. And so this is uh, a very, very relevant thing. It's not just educational, but it's also prescriptional as to how we should live our lives. And so what I want to do is give you the main points because there's a, a lot of information in this one. And uh, so I want to give you the main points and then the structure of this particular class that I think will help you get your arms around this much easier. The main points of this is, number one, that the church originates and continues the Abrahamic covenant way, way back in New Testament, in Old Testament number four. And secondly, God's plan is executed in history through ordinary human beings. Those are the two main points. Now, there's a lot more there, of course, but what we have to say is uh, a what you might call an adjectival modifier to ordinary human beings that God executes his plan through. These are people who are empowered and equipped by his Holy Spirit. That's how God does it. And so any blessing that we receive... Uh, any miracles that we see are likely today going to be done through human beings. And so the structure of today's class is going to be, number one, we're going to talk about the history or the origin of the church. Number two, we're going to talk about the source and the nature of the church's effectiveness. Number three, what is the church's purpose and its activity today? What's it supposed to be doing? So where we start now is we're going to start with that Abrahamic covenant that is really the very basis of this whole Bethel course, going back to Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now, before we get there, we have to understand well, why this Abrahamic covenant, what was that all about? And so I want you to pick this up. My uh, friend and indispensable helper, Steve McFarland, had, has done this for us. Uh, and uh, take a look at this. And this will help us to understand the need and the reason behind the Abrahamic Covenant. Number one, upper left, we see the symbol, symbols behind the poster and the picture called Divine Intentions. Now, by the way, uh, Walter Olson, who was the artist for uh, Harley Swiggum, who wrote the whole Bethel course, 
uh, a wonderful artist, but you really can't necessarily call this art. And it's not really designed to be. It's designed to be nearly corny types of pictures with all sorts of symbols that are easy to remember because the pictures are so unusual. So in divine intentions here, what we see is this is how God originally created the world, nature, its inhabitants, us, and how we treat each other and how we treat nature. And in the beginning, the way God made everything, everything was good. Remember that? And so in the beginning, the relationship between man and his fellow and sister uh, human beings was one of harmony and one of uh, absolute comfort, openness. And the relationship between uh, those people and their neighbors was also very good. The relationship that one had within himself or herself was also one of harmony and peace. In other words, no addictions, no obsessions, no pathologies, no fears. None of that in the beginning. And then the relationship between people and nature was very good. There was respect for nature. Uh, God told people that their responsibility was to dress, till, keep, sustain, protect nature. And that's what mankind did. But the ability to do that and that continued peace and that continued harmony was all dependent upon obedience to God. So you see the note indicating harmony and the uh, hand coming down, very anthropomorphic, but not reality, but being handed down. And the idea being that the relationship with God is maintained through obedience to God, and that relationship to God is what is necessary to have that continued peace and harmony. However, mankind did not like the idea of ceding his and her independence to another being, even God, and was tempted by Satan to assert their independence and to go their own way. And even though, and, and the story of the don't eat the tree in the garden of uh, uh, Eden that is termed the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that is, of course, uh, symbolic of the various types of orders, all for their own good, that God gives man and woman. By man, of course, I'm talking mankind, generic. And But they saw that there were some things that they could get immediately, immediate benefits, immediate pleasures, by going away from God. And so, as a result, the harmony and the connection with God was broken. New Testament, uh, pardon me, Old Testament number three. Disharmony. And so they were excluded from the Garden of Eden where God had met with uh, Adam figuratively every single day, Adam and Eve. So that's the need for God's plan, which is in 
uh, chapter uh, 4, which is at the bottom left. And here it's summarized in the uh, scriptures, Genesis 12, 1 through 3, and I'll read it to you. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That was Israel's mission. And uh, some, what you might say, embellishments and uh, further descriptions of that is given to us in Isaiah 42.6 and 49.6, where we're told, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. That is to say, I've called you Israel. I have called you in righteousness. I will take your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. Now, what it means here is, is that you're going to be the medium through which I will be known, through which people will get to know who I am. Through you, you'll be a light. You'll be a source of illumination and knowledge to these people. And when you do that, I will protect you. I will keep you and protect you when you do that. Isaiah 49, 6, I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. That illumination gives people the opportunity to respond favorably to that message and therefore to be saved, to be salvation. Now in Deuteronomy 7, 6, is a furtherance of how this this plan through Abraham was going to play out, uh, we're told, For you are a people, you, the Israelites, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. And I'm going to work through you to accomplish my plan. Now, The long story of the Old Testament is how God tried to hammer into the heads of these Israelites what God was like, what his nature was like, and what he demanded of them uh, to live a holy life and to be special and unique uh, among all the other nations. And the way that that was played out primarily was through their dietary laws, through their separation. Uh, That was primarily due to keep them pure and to keep them from being polluted from the Uh, pagans all around them, that there was only one God, and also uh, many other uh, laws that were unique to the Jews. And so the Old Testament is a story of this education and how Israel was uh, was definitely a D student in learning these and uh, not that it wasn't smart. We know that the, the Jews are very, very smart. They're also very funny. That's why there's so many doctors, lawyers and, uh, that are Jews, and also some of the best comedians are Jews. So they're very, very gifted people, but they turned out to be also uh, very independent, probably just like the rest of the people on the earth, really. And so the Old Testament shows how over and over again they failed. And prophets were sent to them to remind them of what their job was. And that's the bottom right picture that you see on your page. And so prophets came and said, look, this is what you're supposed to be doing, and you're not doing it. And a matter of fact, what you're doing is you're just focusing on all the privileges and promises that God gave you and not focusing on your responsibility and what your job was. And so then Jesus gives 
a description in a colorful parable, which is uh, in Matthew 21, 33 through, uh, I think that's 44, excuse me. Um, it's a long parable. And the parable goes something like this. Jesus is telling the Jews. These are the religious leaders that he's given this parable to. He said, let me give you a parable. He says, there was a landowner who went off for a uh, long trip. And he puts in charge, basically what we might call property managers, who come in and they take care of his huge ranch and farm. They call it a vineyard. And so they came in and... So the master's away, and he needs some money on his trips, and so he sends some servants to, back to the ranch to pick up some of the fruit and some of the uh, benefits from this ranch, the income from the ranch, you might say. Well, they go back there to get some of this fruit, and they're beaten, and they're humiliated. And so the master sends back some others, and they're killed. Now, these are symbols of God sending prophets to the people Israel to collect the fruit of what they're supposed to be doing. And that fruit is being a light to the Gentiles. That's their job. That's their fruit. And then the uh, master says, well, they didn't listen to my prophets. In fact, they abused them and even killed them. But I know what I'll do. I'll send my son. Surely they will honor my son. So he sends his son and they, and the tenants there at the ranch, they say, oh good, let's go ahead and kill him and then we'll get the inheritance. And that's what they do. And Jesus says to the landowners, he says, what do you, th-? I mean to the Pharisees and the people, the religious leaders listening to this parable, what do you think they'll do? And of course they're indignant. They said, well, they're going to take those tenants, those wicked tenants, and they're going to put them to death. And Jesus said, right. He said, but let me tell you, that's you. And so this is, a, this is a description of the handoff, you might say. Because the punchline of the story is that God is going to take the kingdom from you because you've done such a horrible job of it. And I'm the son and you still don't listen to me. And so God is going to take the kingdom from you and the job that he had given Israel, take it from you and give it to the Gentiles. And so this parable is a description of this handoff. That's where the church really began. Now, at that time, nobody really understood exactly what Jesus was talking about. There was no such thing as a church at that time. So then we have an affirmation of Jesus himself uh, with the... um, prophet Simeon. This was when Jesus was actually born, and uh, Simeon goes into the temple, and Simeon took the baby Jesus in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, because Simeon had asked God, even though I'm really, really old, please let me live until I see the Messiah, the promised Savior of Israel. You may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. So here we go again. Again, a reaffirmation that Israel's job was to be a light to the Gentiles. So there we have the birth of the church. 
And the birth of the church is given in detail in chapter 2 of Acts. And in chapter 2 of Acts, we see the Pentecost. And the birth of the church happened as a result primarily of the giving of the Holy Spirit, which is given in that dramatic uh, episode in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 2 of Acts. Without the Holy Spirit, no church. Without ordinary people who are obedient to God, no church. Those two things had to occur. Without the uh, old covenant that explained what and why God's plan was being put in place, no church. So all those things had to come together. So we have this history and peoples coming together here. Okay, so the source and the power of the church. There's actually ten different points that we're going to make under the source and, uh, and nature of the power of the church. First of all, the church is made up of ordinary people. Church is made up of ordinary people. And in Acts 11.26, for example, we're told, and when he found him, that is when Barnabas found Saul of Tarsus, he brought him back to Antioch, which is one of the early churches. And for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. These are ordinary people. Now, Barnabas and Saul had some very unique personality characteristics and some gifts just like every single one of you. But they're ordinary people otherwise. They have ordinary emotions. Uh, They bled when they were cut and they got sick and they uh, had periods of meltdowns. They had periods of elation. Colossians 4.15 says, Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters. This is one of this is Paul's, one of his typical, um, well, you might say, uh, farewells in his letter, where we say, best wishes, Jerry. This is his farewell. He says, Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And over and over again, we are given that phrase, the church in their house. Back then, churches met in people's houses. They were called house churches. These are ordinary people that are meeting like this. In Romans 16.5, another farewell, uh, Paul says, Greet also the church that meets at their house. Greet my dear friend Epinetus, who was the first convert, convert to Christ in the province of Asia. Asia is southwestern Turkey. So secondly, the church is born and nurtured and sustained by God. Very important point. It's born through these miracles we see in history. It's nurtured and sustained by God. And we see this in many different places. In John 15, 16, we read Jesus saying, You, talking to his disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. Fruit that will last. As I've said a number of times in here, Memorial Drive Presbyterian Church, where I grew up, one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And we read in Ephesians 3.20, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. Just listen to that. The power 
of the Holy Spirit that's at work within us can equip us and empower us to do immeasurably more than we ever imagined could be done. And so, yes, it's done through ordinary people, but it's done through ordinary people who are gifted with the Holy Spirit. And how do you get the Holy Spirit? Well, Jesus said, he said, he who seeks will find. He who asks will receive. And he who knocks the door will be open to him. So you have to really want it. Someone who doesn't want it, doesn't get it, or, you know, this is, this is all there is. You know, you're dead, you're dead. So why not just go after the greatest pleasure you can during this life? You go the path of least resistance, just follow the beast and avoid pain and discomfort and go for uh, pleasure, comfort, security. No, the Holy Spirit illuminates us as to the real truth and then equips us. Three, the church is a people that shares the Abrahamic covenant, like we said before. In Acts 3, 25 through 26, Peter is giving a speech to the Jews. And here's what he says. He says, and you are heirs. You, a lot of you are Gentiles. You are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. When he says fathers, he means the forefathers. He said, uh, God said to Abraham, through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you. That is to say, Jesus came first to you, the Israelites, to bless you by, how is he going to bless them? By first turning each of you from your wicked ways. So giving them the gift of repentance, seeing that they're on the wrong road. And even though you might be 60 years old and you've been going down the wrong road for a long time, guess what? Any of us who've gotten lost in some city we're not familiar with, the best way to get to where you want to get is to turn around and go back down that long road you've been going down by mistake. Repentance is no fun, but the Holy Spirit gives us the motivation and gives us the ability to repent. Fourth, uh, fourth, the church is a servant people. Am I still on here? Yeah. The church is a servant people. And so uh, Jesus, is, of course, is our model for servanthood. And in 1 Corinthians 4.1 we read, This then is how you ought to regard us. That is to say, we apostles. Paul's, uh, Paul's talking about himself. As servants of Christ and of those entrusted with the mysteries of God uh, that God has revealed. And so Paul, even though this guy was a rock star, a superstar apostle, he was often homeless, he was often poverty stricken, he was beaten over and over again. Uh, taking one of those beatings would have been enough for most people to have said, Yeah, I don't think that God wants me to do this. Not Paul. He kept on going. He was, uh, went through a lot of suffering. He was constantly persecuted. He was rejected, of course, by his, his old uh, scholastic buddies as Pharisees and probably for, by his, much of his family. And he was a servant, however. Galatians five thirteen through 14, Paul writes, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. That is to say, to be free to follow Christ. What do you mean by free? When he says free to be a servant of Christ, sounds like an oxymoron, doesn't it? Free to be a slave to Christ. He says that some places. 
You kind of shake your head. How is that right? Well, you are set free from your selfishness, from your self-obsessions, from your self-centeredness, from your addictions, from your pathologies that keep you from turning away from things that only minister to yourself to Jesus Christ. That's what you're free for. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. In 1 John 3.16, John the Apostle writes, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters when necessary. Okay, so number five, the church is a people whose leader is Christ. In Ephesians four fifteen through 16, we read, Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is, Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So this metaphor of the church as the body of Christ is another way of saying that God uses ordinary people to do his purpose and his work. And so if you're hearing what I'm saying, you feel that this coming to church and being here day in, day out, or Sunday in, Sunday out, and you're not doing something to be part of God's mission. I hate to say it, but we're being disobedient. It's hard, but just coming here and sitting in church doesn't really make us the Christian wants us to be than any more than going and sitting in a garage is going to make us a car. (laughs) And so we need to hear what God has to say and we need to, to do it. And if you're bugged and if you're being prodded and you're being irritated by the Holy Spirit, good, that's the Holy Spirit coming and, and working in it. What's he also going to do? He's also going to make the things that had entertained you and, and uh, made your life interesting but didn't have anything to do with God or you didn't let it have anything to do with God are going to lose their interest. And so former desires and former obsessions, they're going to start loosening if you let them. If you want them. Again, remember the first requirement for getting the Holy Spirit is he who seeks. Fine. If you're not seeking, you're not going to get it. God doesn't just give anybody the Holy Spirit. You have to want it. And you have to seek for it. And you have to ask for it. And you have to be assertive by knocking on the door, so to speak. Okay. Today's a two-border. So, number six. The church is a recipient people with a motive for mission. So, Ephesians 5, 1 through 2 says, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved Christians, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us 
and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So when we follow God and we respond to what we've learned in this course, he calls us to do, it's not out of some kind of original Christian martyr sense of duty. Oh, I am so heavy weighed down by my Christian duties. That's not a good Christian. No, a good Christian loves what they're doing. If you don't love what you're doing, you've got to go back and figure it out and ask God, what's wrong? Let him look under the hood and show you. And so the way the Christian responds is out of gratitude and out of thankfulness. And if that's not how you're acting, then uh, we, we need to do some more looking into the events God has done in your life. Observe other people, what God has done in their lives, to see the blessings we've received. And, as I said, they're from God, but they're almost always through people. John fifteen twelve, Jesus says to his disciples, My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. A tall order, but that's what we're supposed to do. Number seven. The church is the proclaiming agency of God's purpose and will. So we are to get out there and we're to spread the word. And, but the way we're supposed to do it is that we're supposed to do it in a way that, that shows uh, what we do. Not just, not just say it. Okay? And I have uh, put, to, uh, put together for you a little poem that uh, I love. Thank you. It is by Edgar Guest. And this was introduced to Betty and myself uh, about 36 years ago by Dale DePew. And I just love it because it tells us how we really need to live our lives not being hypocritical. Edgar Guest says, I'd rather see a sermon than hear one any day. I'd rather one should walk with me than merely tell the way. The eyes a better pupil and more willing than the ear. Find counsel as confusing, but examples always clear. And the best of all preachers are the men who live their creeds. For to see good put in action is what everybody needs. I soon can learn to do it if you'll let me see it done. I can watch your hands in action, but your tongue too fast may run. And the lecture you deliver may be very wise and true. But I'd rather get my lessons by observing what you do. For I might misunderstand you in the high advice you give. But there's no misunderstanding how you act and how you live. Some wise words. I'm still trying to live up to that. So... Okay, number eight, the church is a people of two worlds. In uh, John 6.40, Jesus says to his disciples, For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. So what Swigum means by this living in two worlds is the current world, which will soon be over. Just, take, just, just go to the Buckingham or to Eagle's Trace or to the Forum, and you'll see how fast... Uh, youth and beauty goes every time I, I'm the oldest of my father's five children. I was born when he was 20. And every time I go up there, I kiss him on the forehead and I say, 
Hi, Dad, remember me? I'm your firstborn, the fruit of your youth and strength and beauty. (laughs) Well, he's no longer beautiful. He's no longer youthful. And he's no longer strong. Big man on campus at White Plains High School, starting 60-minuter at University of Pennsylvania, played for the New York Giants and Montreal Alouettes. Those days are all gone. We have pictures of that all through his room. I don't know if that's torture or if that's reassurement. But just go and visit one of those, and you'll see how brief life is and how brief the gifts that we have really are as well. So we live in two worlds, the one here and now, and the one that is eternity. Now, when we think of eternity, at least the way I used to think of it, is is after we die. That's not the case. Eternity simply means a dimension without time. That's all that means. And so when we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, we begin living the eternal life then. When you are filled with the Holy Spirit, your eternal life is in process now. Now it continues. And that is why Jesus said, you will never die. Because you have that eternal life now, physically, everyone can see that we're getting older and our skin's getting wrinkler. Um, can't believe how my pecs have fallen, but that's part, that's part of the problem. And I have to accept it. And I've lost an inch and a half since high school. Maybe a lot of you guys have lost uh, some height also. Siam used to be seven feet tall. Now look at it. <laughs> so, so anyway, so we see these things are going by quickly. But the eternal life never changes. That's why Jesus could say, and you'll never die. Because otherwise, unless you see it that way, it sounds like a nonsensical statement. The church is a reconciliatory people. In 2 Corinthians 5.18, Jesus writes the church in Corinth, All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Now, what do I mean by, by reconciliation? What we mean by reconciliation is the return... From here, disharmony, back to here, divine intentions. That's what reconciliation is all about. To be reconciled within yourself. To get rid of all those addictions, those obsessions, those pathologies, that lack of peace. And then, as a result, having harmony with your closest people, your spouses, your kids, your parents, your close friends. And then with your neighbors, people who may not be so close, but you do live with. And then with nature, to reconcile all that, to go back from disharmony, this horrible period, which we're living in now, of chaos, confusion, lack of peace, back to harmony. That's what reconciliation is all about. It's a big deal. And then number 10, uh, finally, is that the church is the agent of redemption. This is really important. Redemption, first of all, we have to understand it's kind of been, when you read the creeds and the confessions, 
it, it's kind of a one of those 50 cent religious words that you know we just kind of say uh, that's not common language so I'm not going to listen to it but it is very very important uh, in ancient times redemption was a very very common thing where some wealthy patron would buy somebody else out of prison or slavery or a punishment they were going to undergo or even execution. They were redeemed. And so it's really important to understand that that's the origin of the word. That somebody greater than you, somebody with resources greater than you, comes and they buy you out of enslavement. And that's what Christ did on the cross. That's the work that he did on the cross, is that he redeemed us. And he redeemed us in three really, really important ways. Number one, and that we can relate to right here and now, is he redeemed us from the power of sin. That is to say, if we are filled with the Holy Spirit, or even if we just have a little bit, the Holy Spirit, we just let the Holy Spirit come in just a little bit. That Holy Spirit gives us the power to not be totally enslaved with those addictions and those obsessions and those impulses that ruin our lives, rob us of peace, rob us of relationships that were and could be wonderful to us. And that is a tremendous source of redemption, the power of sin. So Christ what is claimed and what has been affirmed by people for over 2,000 years, even longer than that when the Holy Spirit was at work before Christ came and before Pentecost, is people have experienced this. Yes, it's true. <laughs> I don't know really, really how it's done, but I did accept Christ or I accepted God's promises and I was able to find peace and I was able to reconcile with my spouse. I was able to reconcile with my father who abused me so badly, or I was able to reconcile with my brother who betrayed me. Secondly, he redeems us from the penalty of sin. Now that is eternal separation from God, and that's what happens basically, of course it's going to happen to us during our lifetime. People who are separated from God are in a, a place of Lack of peace, but in particular, it's after we die. Because once you die, that's it. Uh, we're going to be held accountable for how we live our life here and now. Now, we're told in the parable of uh, the laborers that there can be 12-hour conversions. But I wouldn't do that if I were you. <laughs> Because you might be taken at 11.59. <laughs> so don't do that. Not wise. And then finally, we are redeemed from the very presence of sin. In heaven, there is no sin. And so we're redeemed from the very presence of it. So that is what the church is also, is that we are the, uh, we are the agency of redemption in the world. That's a big project, don't you think? And so, again, we go back to Genesis 12, 1 through 3, as Abraham's covenant that all the 
the houses and all the people of the earth will be blessed through you. That is to say, telling Abraham, through you, and he doesn't say this outright, but through you, the he- a Hebrew, will come the Hebrew race and then eventually the Israelites. Israelites is named that way because his grandson Jacob was renamed Israel. And all of his descendants were called Israelites. Now, at the time the covenant was made with Abraham, if God had said Israelite, he wouldn't know what he's talking about because he didn't even have a son yet. But through him and his seed and his descendants, the whole world, the whole world will be blessed. That's a lot of blessing because there's 2.3 billion Christians in the world as of 2015. So that's a lot of blessing to be done. And that tells us that if God's work's going to be done, it's going to be done through people, and there are a lot of people out there. So if we say, well, you know, this whole idea of redemption and everything, Jerry, that you're talking about, uh, and making everything like, uh, you know, lesson two, divine intentions, that's not a reality that can happen. Well, just imagine if all 2.3 billion people in the world, which is about a third of all the people in the world, if they were all on fire with the Holy Spirit, don't you think a lot of things that looked like were impossible before would be, would be accomplished? So, anyway, some things that I wanted to talk about, some of the redemptive activities, and we're going to finish up with this, is that the church is the continued distributor of God's compassion. And James says in James two fifteen through 16, he says to uh, some people, he's, he's giving them a mild scolding. He says, suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is that? So we are to be the distributor of God's compassion. Secondly, we're to be the duplicator of God's forgiveness. And uh, so, of course, the forgiveness that he's asking of us is something amazing. Because listen to what Christ says on the cross. In Luke 23, 34, he says, Father, forgive them. That is to say, the Roman people who have nailed him to the cross. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots at the bottom of the cross and were just making jokes. And then the church is to be the mediator of God's love. And as we said just a moment ago by listening to Edgar Guest's sermon that we see, it's not so much what we say, it's what we do that will really make people see God. And fourth... We need to be the embodiment of God's justice. So whenever the church sees people who are destitute, people who are afflicted, people who are poor, people who are oppressed, we're not to just uh, say, oh, that's too bad. We are to do work. Now, you can work at your place of business, earn a paycheck, and give that to people who have a calling for that, and that's just fine. That's why whatever we do, we need to do it as giving to the Lord. 
so we can convert the work that we do at Exxon or the work that we do in the grocery store or the work that we do any place you work. We can convert that to a very holy thing by taking the compensation we get and give it to those people who have a calling to actually do it. And so I'm just so thankful that the forum where my father is, the CNAs who do, they have a special calling to do what they do, I'll tell you that. To bathe and cleanse and uh, get dressed and feed these people who often are not very grateful. So we are to use God and Christ as our example. Amos says one of the minor prophets, only minor because all 12 of the minor prophets can be put on one scroll. There's nothing minor about his words. Amos in 5.24 says, But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. So God really cares about justice. Micah 6.8. Micah says, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? It's really quite simple, he's saying. To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. That's it. Can you remember those three things? Yeah, I can remember them. I just can't do them. So, but you can with the Holy Spirit. We're promised. And then in Psalm 82, 3 through 4, defend the weak and the fatherless, uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed, rescue the weak and the needy, deliver them from the hand of the wicked. And so in a place like Houston, there is really a lot of uh, opportunities for doing the work of the church. Let me close with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father and God, I thank you so very much for this lesson. Thank you for uh, getting us out of our comfort zone and making us feel uncomfortable for not obeying you and doing what we know that we should, having read your word and heard it. But we know that with your Holy Spirit, you change our values, you change our desires, you change what is important to us, you change our very worldview. And we ask you to do that so that you will use us and we will respond gladly to your word. Your Son, Jesus Christ's name, we pray these things. Amen.